Good morning. My name is Laura Kovacs. I've been away for a few weeks, and it's great to be back at St. George's, I have to say. Um, uh, this morning's scripture reading is, takes us up to the Eighth Commandment, and I'm sure you've figured that out by now, Thou shall not steal. And it's from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. By the power of your Holy Spirit, O oh God, open our eyes and our hearts to your word, your word that brings life. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was eight or so, my younger brother and I spent the day with my dad at the automotive shop where he worked. In the foyer at the front, they had these full-sized O. Henry chocolate bars for a fundraiser or something, because beside them there was the little box for the donation. It was all on honor system. And needless to say, I didn't have any money, so I pilfered one when no one was looking. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> and I offered my brother a piece uh, as I scarfed it down in the back seat of our Dodge Colt to try to keep him quiet, you know. But uh, he wanted nothing to do with my deed. And uh, needless to say, I was spotted by my dad's coworker and found out, and I can still feel that, that deep sense of shame I felt at the time my parents really laid it into me. And needless to say, it worked, uh, because it was probably my last and most obvious and flagrant violation of today's commandment. Um, and this is the most obvious meaning of the commandment not to steal. I took something 
that didn't belong to me. I guess we all have candy on the brain this week or something like that. Hopefully my system is gradually (laughs) flushing out all the candy, to be honest. Um, While we might recognize some instances where theft is acceptable, such as stealing to feed one's family out of desperation, outright theft is generally regarded as a moral wrong across cultures and across traditions. Because really, if I'm allowed to steal, steal something as small as a chocolate bar, what is to stop a stronger person from stealing something much bigger from me? It prevents small injustices. It's a kind of basic trust that keeps communities and societies together. Thou shalt not steal. That part is rather straightforward. Of course, by this point in the sermon series, you may have guessed that the commandments aren't quite so straightforward. We're only given you shall not steal here in the Bible, but it's expanded on elsewhere in many other places. Well, just taking something does fit the definition of stealing. The Eighth Commandment is more of an umbrella. It's a shorthand term for a constellation of related transgressions and a way of thinking rather than a single solitary act, which is still bad. Don't steal the O. Henry if you're given the chance, whether, no matter the size of that O. Henry uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, its worth. In Scripture, there is fraud. There's the withholding of the wages of workers. There's depriving someone of their means to survive and make a living. The Bible is very concerned with how those who have economic power deal with those in their employee or their care. It's also considered stealing to stand by while a neighbor loses their donkey and you just let it fall into a ditch and die. I thought that that was kind of funny, personally myself. If you're not, as long as you're not the one who owns the donkey. If you saw the series finale of Seinfeld, where the main characters are are sent to a year in jail for standing idly by uh, and even making fun of a man who's getting robbed, that's got some biblical precedence in Deuteronomy 22. To withhold our help when a neighbor's livelihood is in danger breaks the eighth commandment. If we see someone being deprived of something and do nothing... And stealing a person is also one of the most severe crimes. In fact, it's the only type of stealing in the Bible that's actually a capital offense in Exodus 22. Slavery, indentured servitude, human trafficking, the seeds of prohibition and emancipation are sown in the Bible with this commandment. We might not find that to be particularly relevant to us, today, but the fact that our many textiles, plastics, and electronics we possess come to us via what is nearly or literally slave labor, as in the case of China's imprisoned Uyghurs, makes it plenty relevant to us. To sell or use another human being for our own gain is a violation of this commandment across the board. Perhaps the most significant violation of this commandment, though, is given greatest expression in the New Testament, because all of these 
types of breaking the commandments are rooted here. In the New Testament, this kind of theft is framed in eschatological terms, which is to say, one of the things we'll be judged by in the end. Jesus tells a parable about a wretched beggar named Lazarus, who a rich man named Dives ignores and steps over every day to get through his gate into his luxury condo. Lo and behold, when they both die, Lazarus is joyously embraced in the bosom of Abraham, the heavenly kingdom, while Dives watches in agony from another place, the bad place. And the epistle of James, chapter 5, puts it even more bluntly. I don't know if James had many friends. I'll read this to you. Come now, you rich people, it says. Come now, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. Like I said... James probably didn't have many friends. Good thing that he was Jesus' brother. (laughs) So one of the most heinous violations against the Eighth Commandment is to withhold our wealth from those who need it. You know that phrase, the road to hell is paved by good intentions? Well, according to the Bible, the road to hell is just as easily paved with gold, bitcoin, or stock options. Karl Marx ain't got nothing on the Apostle James. In the end, this commandment isn't just about refraining from snatching chocolate bars, which it is, or cars, which it is, or pyramid schemes or any other type of overt stealing. It's about our inability to love our neighbors, exhibited by our lack of generosity towards them. It's not enough to simply refrain from taking. Fulfilling this commandment means turning away from stinginess and turning towards generosity, towards a disposition of giving, which is perhaps a perfect segue towards talking about Stewardship Month. It's providential, really, that this commandment came up today as packages made their way through the mail, thanking all of you. I didn't even plan it that way. It's just the way that it happened. But in all seriousness, I mean, I could just stand up here and say, God says to be generous, be generous, and you'll just feel bad and say, okay, and maybe you'll give a little bit more to something somewhere. But it doesn't really compel us towards change. Law doesn't save us so to speak. 
And as much as I'd like to argue, guilt trip or sweet talk folks into giving, I think there's something far more compelling that followers of Jesus hold dear that makes all kinds of generosity possible. Breaking this commandment, whether through theft or stinginess, comes out of sense of scarcity. It comes out of sense of scarcity, that we don't have enough. We take because we want more, whether it's an O. Henry or wages meant for another person. And we don't give because we don't think that there's enough to go around. Christianity tells a different story. The story of the creator of the universe, the one who gives life to the whole cosmos out of pure self-giving love. The story of a God who brought slaves out of Egypt, whose life was theft and sustained them in the wilderness with bread from heaven and water from a rock. A God who, in the words of the Apostle Paul, that though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Christianity tells the story of a God who had all things, but gave it away on a cross so that we would have everything and be delivered from our selfishness and self-centeredness for a deep joy. Christianity tells the story of grace, God's unconditional, unmerited love for us in spite of all that we do wrong. Meaning that, in spite of everything we've ever been taught to believe, not only do we have enough, we are enough. God loves us as we are. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. And there's this depth of love that never runs out. A friend of mine, Doug Goodwin, who's a retired minister, told me once that he's made it his discipline to tithe to his congregation, the spiritual discipline of giving, to give 10% of his income away to his congregation, not because he's a naturally generous person, but be precisely because he isn't <laughs> a naturally generous person. But God is. And that's why we give, not just to the church. This isn't about just giving to the church, though. Please, please, give. Give to the church. Give until you faint. But it's, to give is an act of trust in God's generosity. This God relieves us from the burden of our scarcity mindset. This God frees us to experience the joy that our own creator experiences in giving so abundantly, without charge, without price, without asking anything in return. We can be generous because we're learning to trust that with God there's always enough to go around. There's always enough to go around. And 
and I mean always. I love a story that a uh, professor and psychologist named Richard Beck, we did a book study on one of his books, uh, Reviving Old Scratch, before. So those of you who read the book will know this story. But he tells the story of Jeffrey. When Jeffrey, a member of his church in Abilene, Texas, came to church for the very first time, and Jeffrey has cognitive disabilities, and Jeffrey's on disability, and he lives in a group home with other adults like him. And he has deep anxiety about being in social situations and becomes easily fixated on things and nervous. He can't, not only can't he work, he's also, he can also be very hard to get along with. I mean, if you're very familiar with church, there are people here who are hard to get along with. Speaking, speaking is one of them. Oh, yeah, don't feel bad for me. Everybody's watching me talk right now. I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> but when Beck brought Jeffrey to church for the first time, he was extremely anxious because it was a whole new and foreign situation. Throughout the service, he was alternatively excited and he was scared. He was unsure of himself and what was going on in the service. That is, until the offering time. When the prayer of offering came, Beck says, when the offering came, Jeffrey's agitation grew. He knew what was coming. It was the passing of collection baskets. And he knew he wanted to give, but he didn't have any money. And Jeffrey leaned over to tell me this with some concern. I gently reassured Jeffrey that he didn't have to give any money, but that reassurance didn't seem to help. So I asked Jeffrey if I could share some of my money with him. No, that's not what he wanted to give. He wanted something of his own to give. And the baskets passed in front of us. Jeffrey seemed sad and distraught about what to do. And then I saw a deep calm go over Jeffrey. A peace seemed to fall over him. He'd decided on something. As the baskets passed behind us, he turned in his seat and solemnly took off his baseball hat, his dingy, old, gross baseball hat. But it was his baseball hat nonetheless, and he placed it in the collection basket. The baskets were taken up. The collection was finished. Jeffrey turned to me, beaming. I gave my hat, he said, with a huge smile. And I beamed back with tears in my eyes. I saw Jeffrey. I saw. He leaned over for a hug, and we rejoiced in his gift. Community is hard, Beck says. And Jeffrey, you should know, isn't always easy to get along with. There are days when he's agitated and he'll call me a dozen times. He doesn't know any better, but that doesn't make it any easier to have my phone ringing all day at work. But that night, at church, Jeffrey's generosity interrupted me in ways that I will carry forever. I was changed that night. Whenever I struggle with giving, sharing, or generosity, I always think 
of Jeffrey's gift. I always think of Jeffrey's gift. Despite his obvious limitations, Jeffrey was able to keep this commandment because Jeffrey instinctively knew that with God, there's always enough to go around. This made Jeffrey an icon, a representation of the risen Christ. Despite the the fact that he had virtually nothing to give, a divine generosity bubbled up within him, sheer joy spilling out for everyone to see. And in seeing it, Beck was himself changed, transformed by this moment of grace. God's generosity at work. So friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't steal. (laughs) Don't steal. But simply not stealing isn't enough. Keeping this commandment means leaving stinginess itself behind for the sake of our neighbors. It means abandoning the brown desert of our scarcity mindset for the green abundance of God's generosity. It means knowing that on account of God, we have enough and we are enough. Even when the dingy old hat on our head (laughs) is all we've got to give. We practice this first in the church, not to win points with God, but so we can thank God by practicing it everywhere. So we, like Jeffrey, know the freedom that with God, there's always more than enough to go around. With God, there's always more than enough to go around. And so may this same infinitely generous God have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Amen. Please stand for our hymn of the day, Come O Font of Every Blessing.